Hi folks, I'm E.C. McKinley. I'm here with Pastor Lindsay Schreiber, pastor of the Spring Street Church of God of Prophecy at 1001 West Spring Street. Today on our podcast, Notes to the Young Preacher, we are uh, speaking about or are looking into the past of a man in the Old Testament who was noted for his personal beauty, for his extraordinary profusion of his hair. In other words, he had long, beautiful hair. And he is uh, the son of David. And as we've been studying and talking about uh, subjects to cover, Lindsay has got, I believe, some really interesting uh, revelations about Absalom, or Absalom, some would say. And um, we'd like to, I just turn it over to you, Lindsay, and you go ahead and share what you got. So I want to take just a few minutes and I guess build my thesis which is that the issue that arises with Absalom and his rebellion, some people know who Absalom is. Um, some, sometimes you hear people talk about an Absalom spirit in mm -hmm. the church, which is people who want to be the, the leader or the authority in the church. They try to usurp authority in the church. Mm -hmm. I believe that is a true spirit. Um, but I don't think you can ignore the roots of Absalom's issue and where it really started. Um, it did not start when he tried to overthrow his father. And so what I want to talk about, really we have to go back to the story of David and Bathsheba mm -hmm. because the theory I'm building is that the sins of one generation or the sins of a leader can affect the generation or those mm -hmm. he leads behind him. Right. They can affect because past sin, even if it's been repented of, can still cause an issue in the future because you cannot properly address something that's going on. So I want to go into a little bit of detail, briefly cover the story of David and Bathsheba before we go on uh, to Absalom. So most people know the account, David was the king of Israel. Uh, Second Kings, Second Kings, Second Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 starts like this. In the spring when kings march out to war, David went to Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroy the Ammonites and besiege Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So we start off with David where he wasn't supposed to be. Right. He should have been out at war. Instead, he was at his palace. He sees a woman bathing on the rooftop, Bathsheba. I could do about four podcasts on my opinion about Bathsheba. All right. But um, we're just going to let it suffice to say she was on this rooftop. He saw her. He sent for her. He found out that she was married. She, he knew who the father was, who her husband was. He sent for her brought her to the palace, and he gets her pregnant. Knowing that it was wrong to take someone else's wife. Right. And so uh, she becomes pregnant, and this forces a cover-up. And so uh, the next thing he has to do is try to get her husband home mm -hmm. because he knows if he can get the husband to sleep with her, when people find out she's pregnant, they'll just assume, oh, it's Uriah's child. So now we're past the stage of the initial sin, and now we're in the cover-up phase. Okay. Cover-up always makes it worse, no matter what the sin is. So he sets up Uriah, um, but when Uriah comes home, Uriah is a man of integrity. And because he's a man of integrity, he won't go home. Right. Um, he says, I, I can't because my men and, and the presence of God are out in this field. I can't go home to my wife. And so something, uh, David does something else here, which is he gets Uriah drunk. That's going to matter here in just a minute. Right. He gets him drunk, um, thinking then he can get him to go home and sleep with his wife, but that doesn't happen either. 
And so now we're on to plan B, which is we'll just have him killed in battle. So he sends word to Joab. He tells Joab, he says, put your eye on the front lines, have everybody else fall back. Now, I think this is an important aspect of when people try to cover for sin. He's now involved somebody else. Several people. So it's not, David's not going to actually kill him, mm-hmm. but he's going to have Joab do it, essentially, on his order. And so now he's involved someone else. Now, I've read different theory on why Joab would go along with this. Maybe Joab thought Uriah had done something wrong. There was some reason the king told him to do this, right? right. Uh, I don't know if you have theories on that, but... No, I uh, believe he trusted the king. I believe that it's that simple, mm-hmm. and he was also a man of war, and mm-hmm. men of war follow orders. Right. So <clears throat> Joab reports back to David um, that they were losing their battle, but Uriah, Uriah is dead. So basically, he sends a message to the king, and he talks about being worried that David was going to be upset that they were losing. And he's like, but the guy is dead that you wanted dead. Right. And I think this is very important. David's response back to him is basically, eh, you win some, you lose some. Right. Right. Um, His response back to him is uh, something along the line of, don't let this upset you. The sword devours all alike. Mm -hmm. That is not the way this this conquering king would have normally talked. Right. It was very odd. That was a proverb he was speaking, but which uh, I think there's something to that too, of of your kind of using scripture to try to cover your tracks. But uh, he was trying to use this old... um, this old saying with him to, to act like, oh, it's not a big deal. But you know David thought it was a big deal that they were losing. Right. But the point was he was becoming somebody different right. in his sin. So um, he claims that he sent this word back to Joab as an encouragement to Joab. But really David is just noting Uriah is just a casualty of war. Right. It is what it is. This stuff happens. He's devaluing the life of this man mm-hmm. to cover his sin. So... Bathsheba gets moved into the palace. The baby is born. Um, But the word said that David displeased the Lord. So the Lord sends a prophet to come and confront uh, David's sin. He sends the prophet Nathan. And Nathan shares a parable about sheep. Right. Right? He he sends this uh, parable, this story about a rich man who took uh, this poor man's little sheep that he loved and it was all that he had and that too is going to be important in just a second so second second samuel 12 verses 11 and 12 says this this is what the lord says this was from the prophet i'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family i will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes and he will sleep with them publicly you acted in secret but i will do this before all israel and in broad daylight Um, other translations say that the wife would be taken by somebody close to him. Mm-hmm. That word calamity, uh, some translations use the word rebellion, that there will be rebellion in your house. David repents. Um, David goes into mourning. The baby still dies, right. a consequence of the sin. Right. Um, we like to whitewash it and act like if you repent, because, because God has now acted as if it, uh, it didn't happen, that because we're justified, that that means that there's no consequence. That's not true. Right. There's still consequence for sin always. Let me let me also interject here that um, I, this is not the right way to say it, 
but the bodies are stacking up. Yeah. The, the death, the, the death count, those that were lost in battle, those uh, now the, the, the child that was mm -hmm. born of Bathsheba, and then the prophet says, you're basically going to reap what you've sown, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that's true for any, that's true for anyone that's caught up in a rebellious spirit. Well, and it wasn't just Uriah that died mm -hmm. um, in that battle. That's what I mean. Yeah, others died too. Yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was collateral, is what we would call that, collateral right. damage. So, a lot of people feel like that's the end of the story. He repents, um, that baby died, but then they have Solomon. And we act like that's the end of the chapter, but it's not. Right. Because this whole time, Joab has still been fighting in Rabbah. He's been fighting where David was supposed to be. Right. And he couldn't get the victory. Okay? So after David has now repented, uh, Joab has been, he's been fighting, and then he sends messengers back, and he says, I fought, and we've captured the water supply. Then he says, assemble the rest of the troops, lay siege, lay siege, <laughs> lay siege to the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will be the one to capture the city, and it will be named after me. Uh -huh. So David is basically goaded by his general, and he says, okay, well, now I've been out here doing your job. Right. We're about to win. Either you can show up and get the victory, or I'm going to get it, and I'm going to name this place after me. Mm -hmm. So David finally shows up where he was supposed to be. He actually gets the crown uh, of this place that they've now conquered, which I think that's a whole other story there. Um, people would say, uh, you know, it's, it's because he finally did the right thing, and then God gave him the victory. And I, there could be an argument made for that. Um, but we like to conclude this here and say, all's well that ends well. Look how it all, God turned it all around. Um, but something happens in the very next chapter because the generational curse was not stopped. Right. That the prophet had pronounced was going to happen. So the very next chapter, this is 2 Samuel 13. And in 2 Samuel 13, we have the account of David's children. You have three of his children, basically, in this story. We have Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar. Right. Amnon was the next in line for the throne. And he is, uh, some translations, I hate this term, but they use the word lovesick for her. He was lusting after her. Right. But um, he wanted to sleep with her. He takes the advice of his counsel um, who says, well, you know, pretend like you're sick. Right. And so he pretends like he's sick, and uh, without reading the entire account, um, through David, ends up having Tamar come to make him food and to bring it. And when she brings it to him while he's in bed, pretending to be sick, he grabs her. And I think this is also a scene, um, I was telling, telling one of my students just today, when I read accounts like this, when I read about Bathsheba and I read about Tamar, this is why I think it's really important for there to be a voice of women in the church, mm -hmm. both, both in pulpits and in policy, um, because I've heard these accounts preached, but I think as a woman I hear it differently mm -hmm. um, when I personally read it. And it's, a, it's a, a chilling account if you really see what she's pleading with him. She's begging with him, please don't do this. She says, please think, she, you know, she says, don't put shame on me when that doesn't work. Please don't, 
don't do this to yourself. Think about yourself when that doesn't work. We could just ask the king. The king would, would give me to you, which she knew wasn't true uh, because they couldn't be married because of their relationship that went against the law. But she was pleading with him, please don't do this, don't do this. And he rapes her anyways. And um, Now, how do, you, how do you see that uh, differently? Because you said you believe in women not only in the ministry but also in policy. Yeah. So what, what do you think is a difference? I know I'm going to sidetrack you here for just a minute. But what is the difference in how a woman reads this and a man reads this? Well... Um, I think there is a tendency. Uh, sexual sin is rampant in churches. Right. It's it's rampant. I I I would assume every kind of church yeah. that there's been issue with uh, ministers and sin. When sexual sin, I just think it's an easy target for the devil. But I cannot help but notice that so often when it happens, it's oftentimes pinned on if it if it's a, a male leader, which is usually you don't see a lot of sexual scandal with a female minister. Um, but oftentimes what I see is, uh, say, a, a pastor has an affair with a woman in the church. It's pinned on her. Yeah. She threw herself at him. Uh, it couldn't possibly be, why was he counseling with a woman alone? <laughs> yeah, which in our, in our tradition was one of the reasons. They would always say, well, women, you've got to wear no makeup, no jewelry, yeah. dresses with a high yeah. enough neckline, low enough hemline. Sleeves of a reasonable length because it was just basically pinned that if a man fails, it's because of the seductress mm -hmm. and the way she dressed. Mm -hmm. uh, back in my day, in, the, in my younger days, they used to say that how a woman, if a woman was raped, mm -hmm. how she dressed was the cause of it. Yeah. But in, not only in uh, the scripture, but in the law. Right. Uh, that really has uh, nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. You have fact one, they were in this place. Fact two, mm -hmm. the woman claimed she was raped. Mm -hmm. Fact three, you do a rape kit, mm -hmm. you follow the investigation, yeah. and you follow it out. But it's always st struck me as kind of uh, unfair mm -hmm. that women are always blamed, mm -hmm. no matter what they do, because they go all the way back to Eve and say, well, Eve was the one who brought all this on us, but she wasn't. Right. She was deceived, but Adam did it with his eyes wide open right. because he craved the woman more than he craved God. Mm -hmm. And I think that's you could see that running through current day church affairs. Yeah. That that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Well, Eve wasn't around to hear what God said. She was dependent on Adam's well, translation of what God right. had said as well. Um, when you talk about the way a woman is dressed, I, I think there, I've, when I've read about Tamar's robes, she was in a specific robe because she was a virgin right. princess that went to her wrist, went down to her ankles, yeah. fully covered. Um, and I, I don't want to get way off track, but I think it's important. I think it's important to say something about it now that we're down this road. Um, I saw a, a museum exhibit a few years ago, and they took clothes of young women who had been sexually assaulted, and they displayed their clothes. Mm-hmm. And they were proving this point of, and all these girls were saying that they were blamed for the way that they looked. Yeah. And it would be, I mean, just the the range of, of articles of clothing you can imagine. But, And I, I don't want to sound, I know what people think of my, my views on some of this stuff. I don't mean to sound as if no man understands in, you know, in churches. Obviously, you do. 
Um, and I don't want to make it sound like we're just, women are totally oppressed in the church. The, the real issue when it comes to sexual assaults comes to a power dynamic. Right. And so we, because we are in a field, or if you want to call it an occupation, that is predominantly men. Right. There's a power differential that, that matters. And that's why I think the story of Bathsheba, I view it, I have had elders in the church. I've had men who have been pastors for 20 or 30 years look me in the eye and call Bathsheba by some of the most awful terms that I won't repeat what they called her. And they to. end up caught in the same they, sin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, but it's a power differential, and just in general, men tend to have more power. So yeah. I'm not saying a woman cannot one is never the predator. Of course, women are predators sometimes, and they should receive equal punishment for what they've done. Absolutely. Um, but when I say that about the pulpit and in policy, I think women view these things differently, not just when I read the accounts in the Bible. And I know that because I've had this conversation with people and the things they've said to me about these, these stories, and I'm like, you've obviously never been the one in a room that a man has imposed himself on right. you. Or that when you went to get help, you heard, well, boys will be boys. Mm -hmm. Or you heard, well, they're visual creatures. They can't help themselves. That's what I'm talking about. And, right. and so for women to be a part of uh, having a voice in the pulpit and in policy, we need the voice in policy because yeah. I think we understand a different aspect. Which brings it full circle back to why women should have a voice mm -hmm. in not just the pulpit, but also in policy yeah. and in positions of leadership that can make the policy. Yeah. And w one of the few things you and I have at times not always, maybe we don't always see fully eye to eye, maybe some day when we just want to have a really, really fiery podcast, Yeah. we can have the discussion about women in uh, higher ranks of credentials. Um, <laughs> but you, You're going to set people's hair on fire with that. I am, and that's fine. Uh, because <laughs> here's the point is, um, if there are decision-making tables, okay, you don't have to say women aren't allowed at this table if you say only people with this credential can sit at this table. Or make the vote. Yeah. You can be a part of the process, but you yeah. can't make the vote. But you can't vote. So if I can't vote, um, you didn't have to say no women at this table. Mm -hmm. It's the same way country clubs don't have to say certain people can't come to the country club because right. that could cost them their charter or whatever. Right. They can just say it's $30,000 a year, and they right. know only certain people can pay that. Right. It's, it's a soft exclusion. You know? Right. But um, back to... Back to your thought. <laughs> back to... I'm sorry, but I wanted to get a no, few I of my like thoughts that. in there. I'm, I, you take... You could talk about... I could talk about this all day long. If you want to say anything else, go ahead. No, I think you. we need to get back to the source here so I don't totally disrupt your train of thought. No, it's fine. Um, I'm, it's clicking today. Um, so... Immediately, Amnon, after he rapes his sister, it, he turns to hate because it was never love to start with. Right. And he hates her when he looks at her because it was about power and it was about control. Mm -hmm. and, and now he's going to treat her like dirt. And she's begging him, don't send me away. He could have paid a, a bride's price for her because now she'll probably never be married um, because he's now taken her virginity. Um, and he could have done that, but instead he, he sends her out, he locks her out, she goes into this morning, she rips those clothes. So enter Absalom, mm -hmm. their brother. He realizes what happens, he takes her to his house, and he says to her, be quiet. Be quiet about this. He says, he's your brother. Now, what's interesting, later in the, in the account, what you find out is that day he decided what he was going to do. Right. 
he didn't, I don't think he told her to be quiet because he was trying to suppress her. Mm -hmm. I think it was, let me handle this. All right. Because daddy ain't going to do it. They already knew. Isn't that interesting? They already knew what David yeah. was going to do. Yeah. And he was right. So Absalom plays it cool. Bible says he doesn't say anything positive or negative to him. He does not tip his hand at all how he feels. David finds out, and the Bible says that David was angry. What, right. But what did he do? Yeah. He didn't do anything. Yeah. Oh, this is what this sounds like in 2023. Oh, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. Oh, I hate to hear that. Yeah. You shouldn't have done that. That's awful. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Terrible. When you have the ability to do something about yeah, it, right? right? David had the ability and he did nothing about it. I believe there were a lot of reasons for that, and I'm going to get your opinion on that here in just a minute. Um, I don't mean to be talking so much. I just want to set this up because then I want to ask your opinion because I just kind of want to share my what I feel like the Lord's spoken to me, and then you're the one with, with the wisdom and the insight, and I want to hear uh, what you have to say after we cover all this. So he waits, and he waits, and he waits. He waits years. He sits for years with this plan. And um, the Bible says, this is interesting. Now, when the prophet came to David, the parable he shared was about, what was the animal? Sheep. It was about a sheep. Right. Okay. So now we're over here in 2 Samuel 13. This is two years later, and now the sheep shearers have come in. Right. It's a time of celebration. Mm -hmm. And Absalom goes to his dad and, and asks that the brothers can come with him to go out and meet with them. We see a connection already, yeah. right? Absalom convinces David to let the brothers go. And then Absalom waits for his brother to get drunk. Did we not say a second ago yeah. he got Uriah drunk yeah. before he killed him? Right. Okay. So now they're going to wait for Absalom. Absalom's going to wait for his brother to get drunk, Amnon. And then he has his men kill him which seems an awful lot like mm -hmm. David didn't kill Uriah. Right. He had someone else do it. Right. So now we truly have the sins of the father are being repeated right. in the next generation. So at first David hears that all of his sons are dead, and then he hears, oh, no, not all of them, just the one. And that to me harkens back to, mm -hmm. don't worry about it. These things happen. Yeah. Collateral damage. Right. So Absalom flees. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth um, if you follow the story out. And this is what people mostly think about Absalom. They think about him as rebellious. And he, he came in and told people, well, if I was the king, you would have your way. And he won the people's hearts, and he comes and steals the throne. Something really, really important that people miss, though. The prophecy uh, that came to David after the sin of Bathsheba, remember it said that somebody close to him was going to take his wives, was going to sleep with them in public, right? Mm -hmm. This all started... Where was Bathsheba at the start of the story? Mm -hmm. She was up on the roof. Right. 2 Samuel 16, Absalom takes his father's concubines and he sleeps with them in a tent on the roof. On the roof. In front of everybody. Yeah. Fulfilling the prophecy and also giving David back what this started with. Right. So... Lots of back and forth. Absalom dies in a chase 
and I want to say just this, and then I'm going to let you talk, because I'm sure you have more important things to say, but I never caught this until I was studying for today. 2 Samuel 18 and 18, this is after the death of Absalom. When he was alive, Absalom had set up a pillar for himself in the king's valley, for he had said, I have no son to preserve the memory of my name. So he gave the pillar his name and is called Absalom's Monument today. This is huge, in my opinion. So he had it built while he was alive. So it wasn't like, well, he could have had more kids if he hadn't died when he did. At some point it was, I, I'm not going to go have any more kids, right. which he could have easily just taken a woman and had more kids, right? right. Okay. He actually had had sons who apparently had died young. Right. He had four children. This is recorded, 2 Samuel 14, 27. I'm smiling because I'm, I, I get so excited when things come together like this. <laughs> Three sons were born to Absalom and a daughter. The sons had all died. He didn't go out and try to make any more sons. I think this speaks to something about his heart was so turned against David. He was so bitter. He was so angry. He was so fixated. He was more fixated on revenge than he was on his legacy. Right. He has one daughter. And do you know what her name was? Tamar. That's right. The only thing to survive Absalom was the name of that person that he was fixated mm -hmm. on. Now, I think... Sounds like a great brother to me that was in the sense of he cared for his sister. He tried to look out for his sister. But man, that hate and that bitterness that was inside of him that he could not let go of it. It destroyed him. It destroyed him. And it, I believe it's a generational curse right. that was passed down um, to him. So I guess I want to ask you a couple of questions since I'm here to get wisdom off of you. Looking at this story, and I, I hope I've made the connection enough that the listeners put these pieces together. Right. Because I feel like they fit really closely together. Looking at modern day, we've already touched on it, that there are issues of integrity in churches, probably in all churches, uh, probably in all faith, too. Right. I, I want to extend that. Um, when we look at when sin occurs, so I want us to look back on David and the cover-up that surrounded that. What do you think are the justifications for covering up when there is sin in leaders today? I don't think there's any justification for covering up. I believe that uh, the Bible, Jesus said, the truth will make you free. The reason we're bound up a lot of times, even generationally, is because we have a secret hidden and I compare it to the Battle of Ai when, mm -hmm. um, when Israel was trying to take the land that God had promised them, and they lost a battle, and they weren't used to losing battles. Mm -hmm. But the, what brought their downfall was when they came back from battle, Joshua says, okay, let's check your tents, see what you've got. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to root out the cause of defeat. Yeah. And the cause of defeat was that a that Achan had hidden objects of golden wedged clothing mm -hmm. that he was not supposed to take from the children. They were t the enemies of Israel were to be totally destroyed, yeah. so that there wasn't even a remembrance of them. Mm 
and uh, you might say they had a scorched earth policy, but when he found these garments and this wedge of gold, when he found them buried in the middle of Achan's tent, which some say was in the middle of the encampment, that Achan's sin of covering up what was forbidden, what was wrong, was what led to their victory. Uh, Joshua gathers it all up. Mm -hmm. They destroy it. They destroy his tent. They destroy his lineage. They destroy everything. And they do that because they were, God had given specific instructions. And so it used to be the old preachers would, would preach on the topic of uh, as long as there's sin in the camp, we'll never have victory. Mm -hmm. And they would always reference this story about Achan's hiding sin mm -hmm. in the camp. Okay, now compare it to your story today. This is nothing but cover-up from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you said that, um, uh, and we know that uh, Amnon, uh, not Amnon, but uh, Absalom, Absalom decided to name this monument after himself in this mm -hmm. valley. And what was the thing that stirred David to get off his backside and go mm -hmm. do something? Yeah. Was that... He was going to miss all Joe, the credit. He was going to miss the credit. Yeah. And so I For believe... what Joab had done. Which Joab <laughs> had done. And, and in the end of that story, Joab comes back into play again. Mm -hmm. But I believe that what happens is, I believe that anytime you hide things, you cover things up, I think that you're inviting the disfavor of the Lord. Yeah. Uh, a New Testament scripture popped in my mind when you were talking a moment ago uh, that, would, that this story specifically proves, be not deceived, mm -hmm. God is not mocked. Mm -hmm. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Mm -hmm. So David, David reaped the rest of his life. Yes, he repented. And using that story, and you, you, you don't tell the whole story, but you tell the part that's palatable to you, mm -hmm. you know, then you might be telling a good story and leaving everybody with a good feeling. Yeah. Like, oh, praise God, David came back to the Lord, and yeah. he's the, this, uh, this David who is the author of the 23rd Psalm. Mm -hmm. Well, people that feel like that way should need to read the 51st Psalm, yeah. which is a psalm of his heartbreak and his mm -hmm. repentance. Yeah. But... Today, one of the biggest problems is, is cheap grace. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I have been aware over the years of cover-ups, mm -hmm. and it has made me uh, angry mm -hmm. that it happens because I know that, as the old preachers used to say, as long as there's sin in the camp, yeah. you'll never have victory. Yeah. And so I see, I have, uh, I have gone into situations where asking the right questions brought out the truth in a situation that was being hidden for generations. What do you think would have happened if... See, <clears throat> I don't think Absalom turned against his dad because of the issue with Tamar. Because the fact that he said that he, he was... He doesn't say it explicitly, but it's, I, I feel like it's alluded to. They both understood dad's not going to deal with this. Yeah. I think he already had hard feelings towards David. Mm -hmm. um, I've read a lot of commentary that talks about that David was a very... Um, I guess a weak parent is the best way you could say it. Strong leader in some senses, but a weak parent. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think would have been the case? What if Absalom had confronted David and said, what are you going to do? Yeah. Instead of telling his sister, be quiet, and I'll, yeah. fi I'll fix this in my time. Well, the same, the same heart that was in Absalom 
to an extent was in his father. Yeah. And um, I, I believe, I, I mean, I genuinely believe the whole outcome would have been differently. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the whole outcome will be different when you confront sin, mm -hmm. when you don't tolerate sin. Mm -hmm. Today, we, we live in a generation that is full of cheap grace. Mm -hmm. Now, I hate the term cheap grace, but it's the only way to say this. Mm -hmm. There's nothing cheap about the grace that we have. It came at the cost of the death of Christ, the punishment. The, every, our sin was laid on Jesus so that we could be forgiven. So if you just say, it's well, a fallacy. it is. Yeah. You say, well, sh uh, shake the preacher's hand. And I like to say it this way. Shake the preacher's hand or, or sign your name on the church roll and everything will be all right. And I always said, you'd be better to shake a donkey's tail and sign your name on a, bron on a barn door. But it would do just as much yeah. good. But what happens is it cheapens grace. It makes grace, uh, it doesn't give grace the, the, the credit for what it does. It's, it's, it's made as an excuse instead of being God's riches at Christ's expense. So I think there would be a, a total different um, outcome in a lot of this. And who knows how many lives would have been spared mm -hmm. even after David committed murder. Mm -hmm. Now, we say what we want. Yeah. He, they say, well, he sent the men to do it. Well, he's just as guilty yeah. of it because he was the one that ordered the hit, so to speak. Well, you see Absalom and, and David have a very complicated relationship because yeah, yeah. they, they come back and forth over and over. I mean, I don't know how many years their story spans, but... You see them, it's almost like you keep thinking they're, maybe they're going to reconcile. Maybe right. it's going to be okay. And it's this back and forth that I think is, happens in a lot of familial relationships probably. Mm -hmm. But I just can't help but think about that, that he knew how his dad was going to act. And so he doesn't say anything. And I think sometimes that's the, I hear that as an excuse all the time of, well, they're not going to listen, so I'm not going to say anything. Right. Okay, well, I guess that's the difference between a prophet and not a prophet because right. prophets didn't care if they received it or not. We're going to go say it. Of course, the prophets get killed, right? Well, um, right. I mean, it ends up being a, a, that's that's not something you really want to be unless God's called you to be it. But I just I can't help but think how different that would be. And I think when I look at this, you know, the reasons why, in my mind, I can think why David thought it was a it, that he couldn't say something about his daughter. Right. Um, number one, I will I do want to say this that I think is interesting. When he okay. finds out that Tamar was raped, he's angry. He doesn't do anything. When he finds out his son is killed, he mourns and he weeps and he's so upset. Yeah. Which to me says a whole lot about his value that he was placing on his daughter. Um, but I can see him making the justifications of this is, this is our future king. Right. Right. It's that end justifies the means. Right. This would be bad for the dynasty yeah. if this got out. So you think um, you think looking the other way is just as you're just as guilty. Yeah. When you look the other way. Yeah. He was in a position to do something. Yeah. He was in a position to do something for his daughter, and and he did nothing. He right. made that decision. I can see that being a piece of it. I can see part of it being uh, just simply that well. What's am I going to say to him when he comes down hard about right. about a sexual sin right. after what he's done, what he got caught in? 
Right. Um, I think that's another piece. I think that's why we're supposed to live above reproach, especially elders in the church are supposed to live above reproach. Right. Um, because you're not able to see things clearly. You know, it's only sin right. when it's in the neighbor's house, and it's not sin when it's in my house. It's a, it's a mistake. I think hypocrisy. You, know, you hear people say that. They say, well, it's not a sin. It's a mistake. Yeah. It's a situation. Yeah. It's a problem, but it's not sin. No. Well, you know, uh, we, sh we should run from sin. Yeah. Like, like and the I, appearance of like it. Like I would run from a snake. Yeah. We should, well, even the appearance of it. Right. Because we don't need, when, when we're having to deal with a situation, for someone to look back and say, yeah, but you did this. Yeah. Or it looked like you did this. You put yourself in a bad situation, too. Right. Um, but I can see that being part of why he didn't do anything about it. I can see the justification of protecting the throne, protecting the decency, um, you know, some people even, I've heard arguments before that make me so mad um, that it's better, you know, situations where like a woman, say a woman is assaulted and she was unaware of what happened to her and they say, well, she didn't even know what happened. It would be better to just let, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. No one who ever said let sleeping dogs lie is a dog, right? So I don't believe in that. Um, but it matters. It matters the sin of the leaders, partially because we're talking about sin in the camp, partially because they are not effective, they cannot be effective after that point with leading well, I don't believe. Um, you're talking about the favor of God coming off of people, and also because it affects all of us. Right. All these extra people get brought into this that did not have to be in the middle of it. And when there is sin in, in churches and in leadership, yeah, it's the business of the church. Right. Um, Paul said it, was it to Timothy? When, when Paul said that, he said, if someone makes an accusation against an elder, there has to be proof, right. has to be witnesses. He says, but if you have the witnesses, it has to be dealt with in front of the church so that the fear of the Lord would come upon the church. Right. And we've taken the total opposite view of that in today's culture. Right. There's, there's some pretty big stories in the news right now um, on uh, one, one person assuming a very large denomination right now because his sin was exposed and his lawsuit is saying it was nobody's business in his private sin. Yes, sir, it was. It was yeah. everybody's business. And, it, and I believe that the reason you do that, that the church has to deal with it, is because it, it defends the name of God. Mm -hmm. It defends the name of Christ. Yeah. When you say, we don't tolerate this, mm -hmm. we don't allow this. Mm -hmm. But you know what a lot of times is, uh, as you told in your uh, review of that, and I thought that was a good review, was that um, when you do something in a position of leadership and you cover it up, you're almost guaranteeing that it's going to pass down to generation because what you sow, yeah. you you're read. going to reap. And because, so if that scripture said, to deal with it publicly so that the fear of the Lord would return. Right. Then what does that mean? Where's the fear of the Lord right now? Yeah. And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. wisdom. Mm -hmm. So I always say that. Why are people acting so stupid? Because there's no fear of the Lord. Yeah. We act like we can handle everything ourselves. We act like we know better. We have a policy yeah, that we don't follow <laughs> a lot of times, yeah. right? Yeah. And and yeah. you know when you when you think about it, and, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm speaking about every church organization mm -hmm. across the board. Yeah. 
I've watched major ministries collapse mm -hmm. because of just a few moments of pleasure for someone. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably it wasn't always lust that was driving them as much as it was the desire to get away with something, to desire mm -hmm. to feel like you're superior. They, they enjoy, well, they enjoy it, I think, too. Well, but you see pride. The in, pleasures of sin for a season. Yeah, you see the pride in, in these men's story is, is that running thread. Uh, like we talked about, having the monument in your name, wanting yeah. the crown. Um, I think some people have it in their minds that they are so precious. Yeah. They cannot be, uh, they can't be exposed. Mm -hmm. That some people are so precious because of their, their uh, service they have given. And it does not negate that. Mm -hmm. What David did did not negate the good things he had done for Israel. Yeah. It didn't. That still stands, okay? But sometimes we act like people who are caught in sin that they are such an asset that they must be protected. Right. That we have to take care of them. We can't risk losing them. Or they have the right family name. Or they have the right education. Or whatever the thing is. I don't care what it is. Yeah. And I don't really care why David didn't handle the deal with his daughter. It was wrong anyways. Right. It was wrong no matter what. Well, and to, to add to what you're saying, when I, when I was a child... Uh, I knew of leaders that failed, and I'm going to give an example. Mm -hmm. Now, this is going back well over 100 years, okay. what happened. But one of the former state bishops in our organization, of course, they didn't call them state bishops then, but um, he was taken out of his position because he had three women in the same local congregation pregnant at the same time. And you know what? It was covered up. And here's why. Well, we don't want to bring a reproach on the church, and this will make the church look so bad to the world. Well, I got news for you. The world wants justice as much as the church well, should want justice. And the world is, I, I find people to be very forgiving when you're just honest. Yeah. When you're just upfront about it. No, I think that's the truth. I think um, that word reproach on the church yeah. kind of makes me cringe on the inside because yeah. um, it, it seems like that's been used as a, Cover. Uh, yeah, I was going to say a blanket. Um, anytime, um, I, there's probably people listening who, who aren't familiar with our movement, and that's okay um, because it's, this happens everywhere. Because yeah. it happens everywhere. But <clears throat> this concept of sometimes you need to get rid of people because they bring a reproach on the church. Mm -hmm. When Paul talked about removing people from a fellowship, it was not because of how it affected us. Right. It was because. They need their soul to be saved. Right. We will remove a covering off of them. Right. And instead we turn it into let's cover for ourselves. Yeah. And that's never right. No. no. It's never. And here, and, and let me say this, because it is, it is in all movements you'll find this. I think it's a part of a fallen nature that people do that. And I, I've always, uh, I had a mentor many years ago. It was a very wise man, probably one of the wisest in our movement his name, was, his name was Raymond Pruitt, mm -hmm. and I loved Brother Raymond. He was just a, so so intelligent. He wrote the book, The Fundamentals of the Faith, mm -hmm. and it's exactly what they are that he expressed. But I heard him say one time, because he would take these things head on, mm -hmm. and he, he would, in 1955, he stood in front of the whole assembly of the church and, and challenged something that was not mm -hmm. biblical. But he would say, I hear people say, you're going to bring a reproach on the church. And he said, if Christ can suffer reproach, surely we could suffer a little. 
I've never forgotten that. Yeah. And and in in many cases, um, it's it's pride that covers up. Yeah. I mean, it, it's what it is. Yeah. It's about uh, you you are trying to project this image that you are superior. Mm-hmm. To everyone else, yeah. So we'll just cover that up to spare yeah. your reputation. Well, there's there's another sort of big story in the news right now, and I'm not going to name the the church that it is, but another um, denomination. And I was reading about how the pastors are calling for accountability; they're demanding accountability. And honestly, it made me respect them. Yeah. Uh, that they were willing to stand up at at the risk of their credentials or their churches to say, "No, we're going to stand for what's right." I am not a PR expert. I, I am a PR nightmare, if I'm being honest, and I'm aware of that. But I know people pretty well. And what I find is that the world is desperate for people to be genuine. They assume we're hypocrites. They want one more thing to say, look at, look at those hypocrites over there. So I just feel like the best thing when these things happen, and I'm not an expert, and I'm not perfect, and God knows that, but in my opinion, the best thing is we need to take accountability when things happen. We need to help people. To, I do believe in restoration. I do too. When someone is willing to be restored. The problem is, and you see this outlined in, in the psalm where he's uh, repenting, there can't be restoration without repentance. Right. There can't be repentance without godly sorrow. And you're not feeling godly sorrow if you're blaming somebody else. Right. If you're always saying, well, she was on that roof. Yeah, and... Why were you at the palace? Right. And what was she going to say to you? If the general would listen to you to, to kill a man and he had no good reason to do it, why would we think that that woman could resist him? Why would we think she would say no? But these stories get told mm-hmm. this way, and it's always, I've, oh, the great man of God was seduced, the great man of God. And it's like, come on. At yeah. some point, you need to take accountability and if, if if people find themselves in these issues, and we're talking about sexual sin, but it could be anything, I do believe in restitution. I do believe that we can uh, that people can be restored through the power of the Holy Ghost. But you can't do it if you don't take responsibility yeah. for what happened and for your part in it. Because if you don't take your, your responsibility for what you did, you'll do it again. Yeah. And this time it'll be worse because now you got away with something. Yeah. And this piece of you was fed because you got away with it. I'm going to ask you one more question. I know we've gone long, but so what do you think are, looking at this story and, and at modern day situations, what's the implications when we do cover up sin? I think when we do cover up sin, of course, one of the reasons for restoration, as I mentioned, is to defend the holiness of God mm-hmm. to the world. But it's also to bring someone to restoration. They're always going to have that mark, even though God forgives our sins. Yeah. In this world, the, the mark is always going to be there on someone. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how much good you, you've done, when, when people know that generations ago mm-hmm. you covered something up. Yeah. Um, the, the implications you're asking me? Yeah, what happens? What happens when, when, when something like this happens, when cover-up takes place, I believe you lose the favor of God. You can rest on your system mm-hmm. or you can rest on your laurels. Mm-hmm. But either way, if you do, you're not accepting the proactive work of God by making yourself humble, mm-hmm. right? Making yourself uh, that we're sorry this happened, but here's the process. Yeah. And the, the Bible says that you have to repent. 
And then you have to bring forth fruits meat of your repentance. Mm -hmm. Some people just say, well, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus, I did that. And then the next thing you know, they're promoting their next yeah. revival. Then they're, then they're um, teaching marriage seminars. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and they're saying, but, but anyways, they're basically telling their side of the story, yeah. not everybody else's side. Yeah. But I think the implications are, are devastating. I believe it will, it will harm or it'll bring a hindrance to the growth of the church. Mm -hmm. It'll bring a hindrance to uh, your own spiritual maturity. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're going to do the same thing this story did. You're going you're gonna to pass into the next generation. Mm -hmm. They're going to know how they're supposed to live by watching you. Yeah. Your children learn their values, and they, mm -hmm. they learn to love God or hate God based on how you uh, lead in front of them. So the implications are horrendous. Yeah. And, I, and I, I just think the first place to help restore something is stop covering up. Yeah. What well, you hear in secret, shouted on a rooftop. I um, I was just thinking when you were talking about um, when it comes to this word general generational curses, and people will think that's like silly or flighty or whatever. I don't because I think you have a generational blessing and a gener I think it goes both ways. Um, but ending a generational curse is more than just saying a prayer, and right. it's more than just saying the right. I do think that's real. I I'm, I'm one of them decree declares break the this, break the that. I pray those, those kind of things, but you also have to live it. Yeah. I, I can't just go pray that and then say, oh, we're all good. I was thinking just now, um, as we get ready to close, I was thinking about um, mom. Uh, so my mom was in a car wreck just prior to her 16th birthday. She, <laughs> she was went flying through the flying air. through the air, and that's <laughs> how she uh, she gets saved in the air. Now, I know there's 24 hours in the day, yeah, but she's what you call a 25th hour Christian. She's sounding just like <clears throat> So, a very powerful testimony. We, we make fun of the, uh, the way uh, she says it sometimes, but <clears throat> a powerful testimony. Anyways. She has a humble way of expressing it. So but, yeah. let me tell you why I tell that story of my kids. Yeah. When my kid doesn't want to wear his seatbelt, yeah. I say, you know, Mamaw didn't wear a seatbelt. She flew out the car. She's in a body cast. She's in a body months. cast. And she got saved, and her life changed, and thank you, Lord, and, and she has this great testimony. That's the all's well that ends well. But don't you think she would have rather uh, been saved in a revival and not had to fly through the air, yeah. right? So I use that to tell the generation behind me um, this is a consequence. There are consequences to actions. I think sometimes when these kind of things happen, um, in leadership and with elders, there's this tendency of we need to protect their family. We need to, and I understand the argument about about trying to be private. Except that verse upends that because you made yourself public. That's why it says not many should be out here trying to be right. this right. Um, I get that, but I also I can't get away from how else do we have the fear of the Lord unless we sit here and sometimes you have to have a dissection. I, I've said it um, before, and I know this could sound really harsh if you don't listen to what I'm saying entirely. I think when ministries implode, whether it's a whole church or it is a, an individual who had a high-profile ministry, I think we need to do an autopsy. Yeah. And the purpose of the autopsy is to find the cure. The purpose of the autopsy is to say what could have done, been done differently. Like right. these football players that, that have CTE, 
right? And they don't right. know it until they die, and then they can dissect their brains. Well, I think sometimes we have to do that when things go sideways, and we have to look and say, what happened? How could it have been avoided? Right. What guardrails can we put, put up? But if we're not doing that with love in our mind and, and not to be gossiping and not to hurt anybody, but truly to find the cure, because we have to understand none of us are immune to it. Right. Nobody is immune to temptation. Nobody is immune um, to being in a bad situation that overtakes them um, unless, you know, without those guardrails up. So I think the problem is that if we don't do it in love and in the right spirit, we end up just cutting cutting up somebody yeah. for no good reason, and that's not ever the right answer. And we always want the right purpose, and yeah. everything that we do should glorify God, should honor Him. Mm -hmm. And when, when we make, I'll say it again, when we t try to turn grace into something cheap, mm -hmm. then we're, we're doing an ultimate disservice, not only to ourselves, but to our generations behind us. And I have to admit to you, I was one of those early on did not believe in generational curses and blessings. Yeah. But the more I read the Bible, instead of listening to what people were telling me, mm -hmm. I found the truth for myself. Yeah, the Bible says that in Exodus, and it talks about that God puts puts it, the sin of one onto generations, mm -hmm. like three or four generations yeah, out. to the fourth and fifth, yeah. I think. there it was. Yeah. yeah, but anyways, we're at the end of our <laughs> podcast. Well, actually, we're a little bit over it. We'll just call this a bonus edition. Right, just pause it and yeah. listen to <laughs> And listen to it uh, and share it with your friends. Um, I want to say that I appreciate the work that you put into this. And for those of you that are watching us right now, in a moment I'm going to have uh, Lindsay say a prayer for you. Um, as I've uh, mentioned before, I, I left the position that I was in after 40 years of ministry, and now I'm adding to that ministry under the direction of my pastor, who's also my daughter. And um, for those of you that say women can't preach, I'd invite you to one of the Sunday morning services and that would put to rest your, your feelings. But I'm not here to pick a fight today. Um, <laughs> but, but I taught my children, don't go looking for a fight, but stand up if you get one. So anyways, I think that's the same way in the spiritual world. You don't look for a demon behind every bush. But at the same time, you recognize true spiritual warfare. And we are involved in it. So thank you for listening. I uh, hope you'll continue to uh, listen to our podcast and to share uh, with your friends and family. So Pastor Lindsay, why don't you dismiss this podcast episode in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness, your mercy, and your love, Lord. I thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, Lord. I thank you that you have taken them. You've cast them as far as the east is from the west into the sea of forgetfulness. Lord, I thank you for your word that is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I thank you that every time we read, we can glean something different than we did before. Lord, I pray right now, Lord, a prayer of repentance uh, for any time, Lord, that, that we have ever, knowingly or unknowingly, Lord, whether it was just looking the other way or, or whatever, any part we would have ever had, uh, Lord, and being on the wrong side of these issues, Lord, forgive us. And Lord, help us to be advocates for justice. Lord, help us to be uh, people who are bold in the Holy Spirit, who will speak up when something is happening and we know that it's wrong. Lord God, I pray that the fear of the Lord would return to the church. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who recognize that you are sovereign and that, Lord, uh, you will not be mocked, Lord, but that we do reap what we sow. Father, I pray for those 
perhaps who find themselves caught right now in sin, and they're in a cycle, the cycle of sin and cover-up, and they're scared, and they're worried, and they don't know what to do. Lord, I pray that you would give them confidence to step forward. Um, David wrote that, that he would ask the darkness to hide him and the light around him to become night, but, Lord, the light and dark are the same to you. So, Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, for those who are in that cycle right now. Help them to get the freedom they need. Lord, help them to experience godly sorrow and repentance and, yes, restoration. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the right heart, Lord, every time we discuss these matters, every time we, we discuss the, the autopsy, every time we have to look at these things, Lord, let it be only with the heart of understanding that none of us are immune, that any of us could fall to sin at any point. And so, Lord, help us to set up the right guardrails and the right protections, Lord. Help us to flee from the very appearance of evil. Lord, we love you. I pray in all things that you are glorified and your church is edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless. Tune into the next podcast. And as I said, share it with your friends. So this is the end of this episode. Notes to the young preacher. God bless you.